and we, the parents, get to learn the lesson of patience every single day. <laughs> so it's great to be here this morning. It's good to see all of you here as we worship together our Lord and Savior, and uh, as we have gathered, and I hope that the opportunity that you had to share about different vacation spots that you've enjoyed going to visit has maybe even uh, piqued your interest to get to know more about our brothers and sisters in the Lord as we get together in fellowship, that we learn about each other's lives, we're interested, and we learn how to pray for each other and and support each other. And uh, I just want to encourage you to continue to do that. Fellowship is so important. And so take those times to to visit each other, you know, not just in church, but in each other's homes. Uh, As we get together in fellowship, uh, the body is built up and strengthened as we as we as we visit, as we fellowship, and as we pray together, these are important things for us as a church to, to be engaged in. And so I just want to encourage you with that this morning. As we enter God's Word this uh, morning, I would invite you now to bow with me and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are the Creator. You have established the order of how this world works. And so you are the one who has established the family. You have established relationships, and Father, in this we see your hand, because you desire relationship with us. You desire intimacy. You desire to know us and for us to know you. And so, Lord, as you place this desire before us, I pray, Lord, that that would also extend to each other, that you have not placed us in isolation, but that you have put us together in a church body, in a family, under you, and that you want us to fellowship with each other in unity You want us to lift one another up in prayer, carry each other's burdens, encourage each other, and we just want to engage with this, Lord. And so we just pray, Father, that you would bless this church, that we would increase and grow in fellowship, in unity, and in lifting one another up. And so we pray that you would, by your Holy Spirit, work this out in our lives, Lord. Thank you for your word this morning, and that through it, your wisdom prevails. That, Lord, the the wisdom of this world, in comparison to your wisdom, is nothing. And Lord, we see that clearly in your word. And so we pray, Father, that you would bless it, speak to our hearts, open our hearts by your Holy Spirit to hear what you have for each one of us this morning. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. The sermon I've entitled for today is Who's the Fool Now? And our text is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, as we had read for us earlier. I'd like to begin by sharing with you a story. The story goes that there was once a man who was considered the town fool. Everyone in town just knew that this individual was labeled the fool. He always did foolish things, and they delighted in nothing more than showing others how foolish this man really was. And one of the games that these townsfolk would like to play was this game where they would take a penny in one hand and a quarter in the other hand, And they would hold both hands out to him, show him the penny and show him the quarter, and ask, you can take whichever one you like. Feel free to choose. And without fail, the town fool would not choose the more valuable quarter. He would choose the penny. And so they would all have a good laugh. And again and again they would do this, and again and again the town fool would choose the penny. And so one day a newcomer comes to town, And he sees them do this with the the so-called town fool one more time. And so the newcomer asks him, Why do you always take the penny when you could take the quarter? Don't you know that a quarter is far more valuable than a penny? To which the town fool replied, 
I understand the value of the two coins, but if I took the quarter, people would stop playing the game. Who is the fool now? You see, behind something that appeared foolish, there was actually more wisdom than the others could discern. The townsfolk didn't have the ability to see the greater wisdom that the town fool was using as he fleeced them one penny at a time, day after day. And so here, as we look at this example, we see something that we see all around us almost every single day. We see the conventional wisdom of the world. And the conventional wisdom of the world likes to puff itself up to say, this is right, we are the smartest, we are the greatest, we are the best, we can figure anything and everything out by our own power, our own intellect. And then we see the wisdom of God. And the wisdom of God is the exact opposite. It says we need to trust him, we need to humble ourselves, we need to listen to him and do the things that he asks us to do, even if they appear initially to be foolish. In our passage today from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we are going to see that this is precisely how God has chosen to work within this world. He has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. He has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the strong. Essentially, God takes the conventional wisdom of the world and he, he flips it on its head. He takes the things that all the smartest people like to puff themselves up with and he shows them for the fools that they actually are. He flips everything upside down. Poor is rich, weak is strong, humble is great. So I invite you to turn there with me this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, if you're not already there. Turn there with me. Let's, let's begin in verses 18 and 19. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Now, to those of us who are familiar with the teachings of Jesus, the teachings of the apostles, of course, the teachings of Paul, the concept of God's upside-down kingdom, this, this reverse sort of a world that he's created for us to live by as Christians, is not unusual. It's not mind-blowing for us when we hear things like, love your enemies. You've heard that before, haven't you? Jesus commands us to love our enemies, to, do, to actually do good to those who would hurt us and try to harm us. It's not shocking. Equally, it's not shocking when we would consider the cross. For the message of the cross, Paul writes, is foolishness to those who are perishing. And so if I were to tell you today that the Roman cross of execution symbolizes the single greatest act of love in the history of this world, does that do anything to you? Would you even so much as bat an eyelash if I were to tell you that a method of execution is actually a symbol of love, the greatest symbol of love? No, this doesn't shock us, because we have grown up with these principles. We have already been taught these things. But I want to take you back to the first century. The first century and the inhabitants of Palestine and the area of, of the greater Europe and the Middle East, these concepts were radical. For you to tell someone in that day to love their enemies was something so mind-boggling, something so upside down that they would have laughed in your face. For you to tell them that a Roman cross of execution is a symbol of love, they would have looked at you like you had four eyes on your head. Something just doesn't add up. To draw this point across for you on the absurdity of using 
a Roman method of execution, the cross, crucifixion, as a symbol of love, let me share with you this story. At one point, it's said that early on in Julius Caesar's political career, feelings against him ran so high that there was a point where he decided it was best for him to leave Rome so that things could cool down. And so he set sail for the Aegean island of Rhodes. But en route to this island, the ship was attacked by pirates, and Caesar himself was captured. The pirates demanded a ransom of 12,000 gold pieces, and Caesar's staff was sent away to arrange the payment. Caesar spent almost 40 days with his captors, and many times he jokingly told them, on several different occasions, that someday I'm going to capture every last one of you and have you crucified to a man. Well, the kidnappers thought that this captive boasting and talking big like this was great amusement, and they would laugh when he would say these sorts of things. But eventually, the ransom was paid, Caesar was freed, he returned to Rome, and the very first thing he did was to gather the Roman fleet. He chased down those pirates, and to a man had them crucified on an island in the Mediterranean Sea, so that any others who would see those pirates hanging from those crosses would know not to mess with Caesar. To a man, he had them crucified. This Roman attitude towards crucifixion, the most humiliating, shameful form of death that could possibly be thought of, was reserved for the worst of criminals. It was a means of showing everyone this is what happens to the enemies of Rome. It was a means of intimidation that who would ever want to die such a horrible, excruciating death? The suffering and humiliation of Roman crucifixion is unequaled as a form of execution in the history of the world. And so 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18 right, rightfully says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. You see, for those living in the first century, the common sense test just didn't work out. That the Savior of the world dying by crucifixion? No, this seems like utter foolishness. Far more foolish than someone choosing a penny over a quarter. Why would a savior choose such a path? Now, as an experiment this week, I've asked a couple of different people the same question. I've asked them this. If everything else was equal and you had the free ability to choose one thing over the other, would you rather be crucified or not crucified? Okay? So I'm going to ask you the same question this morning. All right? By, by show of hands here today, who here would like to be crucified? And who here, hand down, if you would like to not be crucified? Okay, no, hands stay down if you want. Okay, that, that's okay. I saw a few hands go up. You might have been confused. But I think we got the point here. If, if everything else is equal, and you had the choice between being crucified or not crucified, you're going to choose to not be crucified, right? It just makes sense. It's the obvious choice. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. You know, as we think of this, we can almost hear the mocking insults and the jeers of the crowd who stood there that day and watched as Jesus was crucified. If you, if you turn to the book of Luke, you'll find there this account. As Jesus is hanging on the cross, these are the things that the passers-by and people that were watching said to him. 
These are the sorts of things. They hurled insults. So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. Then others said, he saved others. Why can't he save himself? And then they insulted him. And even those next to him threw insults at him, those who were crucified on either side. And others said, let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. You know, in the dripping sarcasm and the venom of these taunts, we can clearly see their thinking. No one, given the choice, would willingly stay on a cross. And if he would, then to their thinking, he was a fool. If he had a choice, why would he stay on the cross? Why would he stay there if he had the ability to get down? Now, if we skip ahead to verses 22 to 23... We see that those who are perishing, those who view the cross of Christ as foolishness, in verses 22 to 23, we see that they are divided into two groups or two categories, both of which consider the story of Christ and the cross to be foolish. In verse 22, this is what we read. The first group, Jews demand miraculous signs, and the second group, and Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to the Gentiles. Now, we already looked at the attitude of the Jews. As they looked at the cross of Jesus Christ, they viewed him as a weak, a weak Savior, someone who claimed to be the Messiah should be strong, should be victorious, should not be humiliated by a death of crucifixion. And so they viewed him as too weak to be a Savior. The Greeks, on the other hand, looked at it as a story of foolishness. You see, the Greeks lived in a culture that exalted wisdom and knowledge and intellect over everything else. You know, the greatest philosophers in the history of the world, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, they were all Greek, and they took great pride in their formidable knowledge and wisdom. In other words, they were smart, and they knew it. You know, they had answers for everything, and they weren't afraid to share them with you. They were not afraid to let everyone know how smart they were, that they were the wisest people in all the world. They considered that their wisdom was so great, so formidable, that if anyone was going to save the world, it was them, and the world had better listen. Now, the Jews, on the other hand, they knew that salvation would not come from man. They knew that salvation had to come from God through a promised Messiah. And so the Jews looked for this Messiah. They looked for someone who would physically lead their nation into victory and even into battle. You see, remember that the Jews of that day were captives of the Roman Empire. And so to them, a military takeover would have to be a miraculous intervention of God. It would require a Messiah who would have supernatural power, who could mobilize the angels of heaven to lead them in victory over their enemies. And so their vision of a Messiah was of a mighty warrior king. Someone like King David. Someone who who could just supernaturally drive off their enemies. And they had this thinking of might is right. The sword and the might of the sword is what will prevail. And these Jews could not reconcile the work of Jesus on the cross to what they expected of their Messiah. They saw someone dying in weakness, in humility... He was not the strong warrior that they desired, that they were expecting. 
And so watching Jesus die on a Roman cross, the Jews considered him to be an utter failure, an imposter who professed to be the Messiah, but who couldn't deliver on the expected holy war. To them, his death was an act of weakness. And so we see that the crucifixion of Christ, therefore, offends the sensibilities of both groups of people. On the one hand, the Greeks, the Gentiles in general, viewed his work as foolishness in comparison to their wisdom, the wisdom of men and of the world. And the others, the Jews, the ones who were looking for the Messiah, saw him as weak compared to the strength of the world. So what neither Jew nor Greek could see was that God was at work, and it pleased him to work in such a way that the Gentile world would view it as foolish, and the Jewish world would consider it as weak. And the reason it pleased God to work in this way was to confound, to simply undermine in every single way human wisdom and strength, to show that even the foolishness of God is wiser than the greatest wisdom of man, to show that God acting in the weakest way possible is still stronger than the strongest man who ever lived. God takes things upside down. He does it to confound man. Listen to this, verses 20 and 21. He asks these rhetorical questions. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased. I love that phrase. God was pleased. It gave him pleasure. He enjoyed this. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was being preached to save those who believed. The foolishness of what was being preached is, of course, the cross of Jesus Christ. If you have come to the cross of Jesus Christ in humility and you've said, Lord, I believe, forgive my sin, and you've become a child of God, that pleases God. It pleases Him that through... A, act of weakness, an act of seeming foolishness, the wisest thing could, that could ever happen has happened, and that is the salvation of the world. Your salvation was bought through a seemingly act of weakness, an act of foolishness, and yet the greatest act that the world has ever seen was won through it. You see, Jesus didn't simply think and write about the solution to our peril, our problem with sin. You know, the great philosophers did that. They puzzled about human weakness. They thought and wrote many things about the problem of sin and where it came from. And yet, in all of their writing, they never solved the problem. In all of their wisdom, they could not change the heart of man. And also, we see that Jesus, he did not lead armies to fight a temporary foe. Sure, he could have come and dr driven off the Romans, but what would that have done in the long term? Instead, he did what we couldn't do. He rescued us by paying the price for all sin for all time with his own blood. That is what he did in that moment on the cross. And so the cross of Jesus Christ appeared to be utter foolishness and weakness to any who saw it in that day. Today, consider that the large emblem of the cross that is imprinted on this church and imprinted and stands above the spires of countless thousands and tens of thousands of churches around the world today, 
That symbol of death and humiliation and intimidation of the Roman Empire is now the greatest single symbol of sacrificial love that this world has ever known. And so today, we hold up the symbol of the cross proudly. That is the power of God. To take something that everyone feared and loathed and now is looked on with love and awe by any who have been changed by the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. Verse 25, The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than man's strength. Who other than God could take a symbol of death, of pain, of humiliation, and turn it into a symbol of power and of love? And so now that we've talked about what Christ has done for us, what God has done through his wisdom, I want us now to turn and look at the people through whom he's chosen to spread this news, this good news of the work that he's done. Paul turns the corner in this passage and focuses now on us in verses 26 to 29. Read along with me. He says this now, Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of this world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of this world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. You see, those who followed someone considered weak and foolish would naturally be considered weak and foolish themselves. If that's how they viewed Jesus, and you're a follower of Jesus, how do you think they're going to view you? They'll most likely view you exactly the same way. Furthermore, many of those who were attracted to the message of the cross were those who were considered the outcasts, the sinners, the undesirables. But let me ask you, is it any different today? To these whom the world would write off, these outcasts, these sinners, God says, I will use you to achieve my purposes in this world. I will use the people that the world says are fools and weak, and I am going to use them to transform the world. So let me ask you the same question that Paul posed to the church in Corinth. How many of you were born into a position of influence? How many of you were born with power, with prestige, with wealth? How many of you, when you were born again into the family of God, came with these positions? With extra wisdom or skills? How many of you thought that you were something great? That You know what? Jesus, when he's invited me, he knew what he was doing because, like, he can use me. I got skills. You know, how many of you were in that position? Not many of you. Just like in the church of Corinth, Paul says, not many of you were anyone important when God called you. So why did he call you? (laughs) He called you because it pleases him to use the simple things, the foolish things, the things that are not to change the world. He chose to use in one time, believe it or not, he used a donkey to speak to a prophet. Why did he do it? I think the text could probably read, it pleased God (laughs) to use a donkey to speak to a prophet. Because he wasn't listening. You see, this is how God works. He delights in using things that would confuse people and confound them. And to show his power and his wisdom in doing so. 
And so God can use us. And you know what? He can use me. And I'm thankful for that. Because I didn't have extra wisdom or any extra insight or power or influence when God called me. I was just a kid. I was just a child when God called me. What did I have to offer? What could I do for the King of Kings and Lord of Lords as a child? But it pleased him to call me, to say, come, follow me, serve me. And as I did that, and he continued to call me, I kept saying, Lord, I've got nothing to give you. I've got nothing to offer. I have no extra skills or abilities or greatness, and and I'm weak. And all the while, he kept saying, that's why you need me. Keep trusting me, because I am strong, and I will be glorified even in your weakness. That is how God works. And so, here I am today, standing before you. Someone who is weak, someone with no extra wisdom or insight or power or influence, and yet, why? Because it pleased God to use a regular guy like me. And I'm thankful that God chooses to work in that way today. If you think that you're nobody special, if you think that you don't have a whole lot of extra wisdom or skill set or gifts or influence or money or anything that you can give to God, it doesn't matter. In fact, it's all the better because you won't have false pride holding you back saying, oh yeah, God could really use me because I'm someone really important. No, God doesn't want anyone to boast before him. That's one of the main reasons he points out in this text that he has chosen to work in this way, that no one can boast before him. And so as we come, we come in humility. We come as we are and we bring the little that we have and we say, Lord, here it is. It's all yours. If you can do something with this, If you could even use a donkey, you can use me, right? And God does. And he speaks, and he uses ordinary, normal people, just as he did in the first century. He still does that today. I found a story which portrays how God takes those who are seen as less than significant to do the most significant things imaginable. The story goes that a water bearer in India had two large pots, each hung on either side of a pole which he would carry across his neck. One pot on this side, one pot on the other. Now, one of the pots had a crack in it. And while the other pot was perfect and always delivered a full portion of water at the end of the long walk from the stream to his master's house, the cracked pot, which had the crack right in the middle, only arrived half full. And for two years, this went on every single day with the bearer delivering only one and a half pots of water to his master's house. Of course, the townspeople laughed every time they saw this old man spilling water out of the one pot all the way home. The perfect pot was proud of its accomplishments, perfect to the end for which it was made. But the poor cracked pot was ashamed of his own imperfection, and he was miserable that he was unable to accomplish the full job that he had been given, and he could only deliver half of the water. He felt even worse that the water bearer was mocked due to his own inadequacy. And so after two years of what was perceived to be a bitter failure, finally one day, the cracked pot spoke to his water bearer. And he said to him, I am ashamed of myself, and I want to apologize to you for my continued failures. Why, asked the bear, what are you ashamed of? Well, I have been able for these past two years to deliver only half of my load of water because of this crack in my side. 
And it, of course, causes the water to leak out all the way back to your master's house. And because of my flaws, you have to do all this work, and others mock you for it on my behalf. And the water bearer felt sorry for this old crack pot. And in his compassion, he said to him, As we return to the master's house, I want you to notice the beautiful flowers along the path. And so indeed, as they went up the hill on the way back to the master's house, the old cracked pot took notice of the sun warming the beautiful wild flowers on the side of the path. And this cheered him up a little bit. But at the end of the trail, he still felt bad because it had leaked out half his load, as always. And so again, it apologized to the bearer for his failures. And the bearer said to the pot, I heard the laughter of others, but I want you to notice something. Did you notice that there were flowers only on your side of the path, but not on the other pot's side? That's because I have always known about your flaw, and I took advantage of it. I planted flower seeds along your side of the path. And so every day while we walked back from the stream, you've watered those flowers. And for two years, I've been able to pick those beautiful flowers to decorate my master's table. Without you being just the way you are, he would not have had this beauty to grace his table. You see, this is how the Lord chooses to work. Each of us, you and I, we all have flaws, and our master knows that. He knows our weaknesses. And even Paul himself said, I have a thorn in the flesh that three times I asked the Lord to remove from me, and he chose not to. And so Paul said, therefore, I will glory in my weakness so that the power of God may be manifest in me. And so in our weakness, God in his wisdom is strong. He uses even our flaws to glorify himself. Each one of us has cracks and flaws, but if we humble ourselves before God, the Lord will use our flaws to grace his table, to give glory to his name. They can appear as foolishness to the rest of the world, but believe me, God knows what he's doing. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose. God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. And God is still choosing to use those people that the world considers foolish unskilled and of no significance to build his kingdom. God is still in the business of choosing people just like you and me. Do you believe that today? God is still choosing us to advance his kingdom. You see, today God is still looking for more cracked pots. He's not just looking for the perfect ones. He's not just looking for the ones who we would say have it all together, ones who have everything figured out, ones who have all of these great skills to offer God. No, he's looking for the broken. He's looking for the weary. He's looking for the hurt. And he's looking for people who will say, Lord Jesus, I believe. I believe in you. I want to trust you with my life. I want to trust that you are going to take these cracks and turn something beautiful out of them that's going to glorify you. And that even in my weakness, people could say, you know what, it's got to be God, because look how broken they are. But look at the beautiful things coming out of their life. Only God could do something like that. 
And so, if we're going to boast in anything, if there's anything good in your life, don't boast in your own skill. Don't boast in your own strength or ability. Boast in the Lord who can work through us in spite of our weakness. In spite of our flaws, God can use someone like me. In spite of my flaws and failures, God can use me. And in spite of your flaws and failures, God will delight in using you because it pleases him to do so. And so today, I just want to ask you, are you ready to fully commit yourself to being used by God? Don't let the cracks in your life, the failures, all of the discouragements and things that you use for excuses hold you back. We do that way too often. We say, God can never use me because look at this. Look at this crack right here. Look at this wound I've been carrying all these years. Look at these flaws in my thinking. He can never use someone like me. And God says, no, I can use absolutely anyone because my foolishness, in my foolishness, I have more wisdom than all of the wisdom of the world combined. Think about that. In God's weakest, silliest, most foolish moment, he's still smarter than the rest of us put together. All of the philosophers of all of time could not match the weakest moment of God. And so as we see this in the world around us, and we think scientists today who say, oh, it was all evolution and random chance. There's no creator. There's no intelligence. There's no nothing. God just looks at them, and I'm pretty sure he laughs. The wisdom of man, really? This is the best you've got? The wisdom of man. It is less than the foolishness of God combined. And so today I want to encourage you. I want to challenge you. Are you ready to give all that you have, your brokenness, your weakness, your flaws to God and say, God, here I am, all of me. Take me and use me in your wisdom, in your strength to glorify yourself, to make something beautiful out of my life. Because let me tell you today that there are many people right around us in this neighborhood, in this town who need Jesus. They need to know about the cross. And maybe they've seen it from a distance and they're not quite sure what it means. And, and maybe to them it's, it seems like foolishness or it seems like, why do I need to go to the cross of Jesus Christ? And they need to be shown that the love of God was poured out in the cross. That the power of the cross can change your life. Because it is the power of God. And maybe you're here today and you need to have that power change you. Maybe you need to go to the cross of Jesus Christ, that cross where the blood of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was shed, and you need to say, Lord Jesus, forgive me of my sins. I want to receive you as my Savior here today. I want to begin a new life with you. Would you help me? Would you give me the courage to take that step today? Maybe that's where you're at. Wherever you're at, I want to, I want to just pray the Holy Spirit would show you what He wants you to do. And that through this, we together as the church here in Killarney, yes, we're cracked, yes, we're flawed, yes, we don't have everything together, but you know what? It would delight God, it would please God to use a church like this, Clarny Mennonite Church on Bay Ave Street. Wouldn't it just be something that would fit into God's way of working to say, you know what, I'm going to use that little church and those people to change this town. Do you think he could do that? I think he could do that in his most foolish moment. I think he could do that in his weakest moment. I think he could do that with his little pinky finger. 
We got to believe him. We got to step out in faith, people. We got to step out and say, God can. He is able. I'm not going to sit here and let my failures and my discouragement and all my self doubt keep me from stepping out in faith to what God wants me to do. Are you ready to step out? Are you ready to believe that God truly is that strong, that he is that wise? I pray that you are. So let's step out in faith today. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we just want to declare to you today that you are the greatest, you are the wisest, you are the most powerful. There is no one and nothing who can compare to you, O Lord. And so we come before you in humility. We come before you in weakness. And we come before you and we say, Lord, take it. Take it all. Take me. I am yours Mold me, make me, and use me to glorify yourself, to bring something beautiful out of my life, out of my pain and out of my my failures of my past. Oh, Lord, would you take it and glorify yourself? Glorify yourself in my life. Make me a blessing, Lord, to others around me. And so, Father, if there's anyone here today who needs to take that first step, I just pray, Lord, that you would give them that nudge by your Holy Spirit to say, Stop running. Stop hiding. Stop fighting me. I'm here. I love you. I want you to be my child. Would you trust me? Oh, Holy Spirit, I just pray that you would do that even now. And Father, I pray that you would use this church in a mighty way in this town. Would you, oh Lord, use our failures and our weakness to show your strength? So that when revival comes, not if it comes, Lord, but when revival comes, people will only be able to say it has to have been God because there's no way that those people could have done it on their own. There's just no way that they could have pulled something like that off. Only you. And so we want to, in advance, Lord, give you all the glory for what you are going to do in this town, in our lives. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.